Some of you may recall the water crisis that took place in Flint, Michigan in 2014-2015, when in an effort to save money, the city switched its drinking water supply from Detroit to the Flint River. While many residents complained that this new water smelled funny and looked funny and tasted funny, it was piped into Flint households for a year and a half anyway, and ended up causing, among other health issues, rashes and itchiness and hair loss and elevated blood lead levels. Many people became ill during this time, and some even died. So what was the cause? Well, Melissa Denchak of the Natural Resources Defense Council in the United States wrote the following. For more than a century, the Flint River, which flows through the heart of town, has served as an unofficial waste disposal site for the many local industries along its shores. From carriage and car factories to meatpacking plants and lumber and paper mills, the waterway has also received raw sewage from the city's waste treatment plant, agricultural and urban runoff, and toxics from leaching landfills. Not surprisingly, the Flint River is rumored to have caught fire twice. Water, a necessity for life, when polluted, became a hindrance to life. You know, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked together at the Joseph narrative in the book of Genesis. And we've been reminded that as God's people, we're called to be agents or conduits of God's blessing to the people around us. A blessing that reaches its most concentrated potency in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all people are sinners, by birth and by choice. And, and as such, left to ourselves, are separated from a holy God forever. But because God so loved the world, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, paying the debt we all owe but can't pay, and then was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. And God promises that all who believe in the Son have eternal life and will live with him for eternity. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, speaking of the water in the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God's people are agents of divine blessing, when we demonstrate, share, and defend the life-giving, thirst-quenching water of the gospel that only Jesus Christ provides and that we all desperately need. What happens, though, if my personal water reservoir, my life, becomes polluted? What happens to my ability to be a conduit of God's blessing if I use my life as a waste disposal site for ungodly living, fleshly thought patterns, and, and justified sin habits? Could it be that a life full of such sewage is less likely to be a successful supplier of the pure, life-giving water that has been poured into us by God's grace? Well, today, from Genesis chapter 39, we're going to be reminded of the importance of a pure life for the purpose of being a blessing to those around us. To say it another way, if we want to be used by God to bless the people that he's providentially brought into our lives for that very purpose, we need to pay attention to the integrity with which we live. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 39 as a whole, we discover that it is what we might call a hamburger passage. And I've used this before in our gatherings. There's three parts to a hamburger passage. There's the bun, the patty, and the other bun, the other half of the bun. The two pieces of bun on the outside have, have symmetry. 
and consistency, essentially mirroring each other. They have purpose, no doubt, giving the burger structure, and they have some nutritional value, and, and they can even be tasty. But the real star of the show is the patty that they surround. Right? The patty is, is what gives the burger its burgerness. In many ways, it justifies the two pieces of, two, two pieces of bun. You know, without it, without the patty, you just have a handful of bread. And in a similar way, Genesis chapter 39 is structured with two almost mirrored accounts, bracketing and highlighting the patty in the middle, where we'll find the main point of Genesis chapter 39 today. But we can't fully appreciate the patty until we first look at the bun, the two pieces of story that hold and showcase that which they surround. So look with me at Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. We notice in this opening verse that the author is seamlessly picking the story back up from the end of Genesis chapter 37, which concluded, as you may recall, with Jacob, Joseph's father, mourning because he thinks his son is dead, but who in actuality has been sold into Egyptian servitude by way of an Ishmaelite caravan. And in chapter 38, which we looked at last week, Uh, The author then took a one-chapter detour from the Joseph story, a one-chapter detour to follow the descent of Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, down into sin. But now as we come to chapter 39, we find the seamless return to the main Joseph narrative once again. So let's continue. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery out of sheer jealous hatred, arrives in Egypt and is purchased by Potiphar, a man of means and a man of power. But in spite of being in what we may call less than ideal circumstances, we're told explicitly that the Lord was with Joseph. In both verse 2 and again in verse 3, the Lord was with Joseph. Meaning that in a special and dynamic way, God's presence empowered and went before this young man. What was the result of God's presence being with Joseph? Well, the text tells us that Joseph prospered. And he had success in everything he did. And he found favor in Potiphar's eyes. I mean, how could you not find favor in Potiphar's eyes? Everything he touched turned to gold. Everything he did worked out perfectly. So Potiphar did what any shrewd businessman would do. He promoted him. And he gave him more and more responsibility and more and more influence in his home. You don't sell a stock when it's skyrocketing. You don't ditch a friendship when it's blossoming. And you don't stifle a man like Joseph when God's hand is clearly upon him. We're told then that God blessed the household because of Joseph. 
both in the house and in the field. Both Potiphar's domestic life and his business were thriving under Joseph's watch and Joseph's stewardship. So again, Potiphar gives Joseph even more responsibility and influence to the point where Joseph, to the point where Joseph, this seemingly charmed young man, took care of everything and his owner essentially retired to only daydreaming about his next meal. The Lord was with Joseph. And because of that, there was prosperity, favor, and blessing. Not only for Joseph, but for those around him as well. Now that's the first half of the bun. Let's jump to the second half, starting in verse 20. Now we'll return to discover the reason in a few moments, but in verse 20 we find Potiphar suddenly and decidedly less pleased with Joseph. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now this marks the darkest period of Joseph's life, and if you're familiar with the narrative as a whole, you already know that it's after this stint in prison that Joseph, by God's design, begins to ascend to the second highest office in all of Egypt. In fact, in chapter 41, verse 41, Pharaoh himself says to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So while his life is about to skyrocket, here in chapter 39, Joseph is a long way from the palace, and the text wants us to feel the depths to which this young man has been, by no fault of his own, forced to descend. Remember in chapter 37, Joseph's brothers betrayed him and threw him down into a cistern. At the end of that same chapter and at the start of ours today, he was brought down into slavery in Egypt. And here, nearing the end of chapter 39, he's taken down into prison. Down, down, down. Joseph is thrust. The most recent leg of that journey being dramatic, from trusted advisor in the house of the captain of Pharaoh's guard to the darkness of a prison reserved for Pharaoh's enemies. This is no doubt a low period in the life of Joseph. But in spite of the change of scenery in this chapter, from Potiphar's house to the king's dungeon, Notice the similarity in what we're about to read to what we read at the beginning of the chapter, the first half of the bun. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now I know you heard the similarities between the two halves of the bun as I read. Both times Joseph is taken down to a place against his will. Both times he's thrown into oppressive circumstances under the authority of a powerful Egyptian. Both times however we're told twice that the Lord was with Joseph. In the prison, in the prison half of the bond, the second half of the bond, this occurs in verses 21 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph. Both times, because of God's special presence with this young man, Joseph had success in all he did. And because that was, quote, granted favor in the eyes of the one who had authority over him. First Potiphar and now the prison warden. Both times, because of that favor given by God in the eyes of his oppressors, Joseph is given increased responsibility, increased influence, and increased trust. 
So much so that in both cases, Potiphar and the warden stop watching Joseph. They just leave him be. So while the settings are very, very much different, the two pieces of bun really are of the same substance. You can see that. In both halves, God being with Joseph is blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. It happens in Potiphar's house, in his palace, and in the king's prison. It happens in the nice house and the big house. It happens in slavery and success and in shackles. God being with Joseph is blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. And you and I desire the same thing, don't we? Of course we do. We want, no matter the circumstances of our lives, to experience the presence of God, to be blessed by God, and to be a blessing to others for the sake of God. We want that. This longing is expressed by the old hymn that prays, Make me a blessing, make me a blessing. Out of my life may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, O Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today. The third verse of that same hymn addresses the Christian. It says this, Give as t'was given to you in your need. Love as the Master loved you. Be to the helpless a helper indeed. Unto your mission be true. Make me a blessing, make me a blessing. Out of my life may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, O Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today. You know, as Christians and as a church family, that's our prayer, isn't it? Out of our lives may Jesus shine. May we give as was given to us in a time of our greatest need. Lord, make us a blessing to someone today. We want to be filled with the Spirit, walking in close relationship with God. We want to experience his unmitigated favor in our lives and to pour out God's saving love on those around us. We want that. And that's what was happening in Genesis chapter 39. God being with Joseph is blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. That's what we find when we look at the two halves of the bun. But as we said at the outset, the bun, while being an essential part of the burger, uh, finds its meaning, its explanation in the patty. That which it surrounds and that which it holds and that which it showcases. So let's shift our attention now from the bun to the patty. And in so doing, we're going to discover why it was that Joseph was experiencing such blessing and why it was that he was being such a blessing to others. Let's go back up to verse 6 in the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Now, because we fast-forwarded past this, let's set the scene again and remember that this is happening at the peak of Joseph's responsibility and at the peak of his influence in Potiphar's home. His owner, seeing how dependable, how effective, and how blessed Joseph was, and himself experiencing the blessings through Joseph, has essentially given him unsupervised rule of the roost. He's not watching Joseph. And one day, while Potiphar was at the spa or whatever he was doing during his early retirement, his wife decides that this good-looking Hebrew slave is fair game, and she propositions Joseph. And starting in verse 8, we find the fallout of this happening. But Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, he called, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And there we find the reason Joseph ended up in prison in the second half of the bun. Joseph, being used by God to be a blessing to the people around him, diligent to work hard and to do his job in a way that honored his master and his God, is caught in the crosshairs of a powerful, determined, persistent, and conniving woman, who when she doesn't get her way, seeks to punish her unwilling servant. She lies. Notice that where the narrator tells us that Joseph fleeing left his cloak in her hand, verse 12, she would later tell both her household slaves and her husband that Joseph left his cloak beside her, in verses 15 and 18, suggesting a voluntary disrobing. She wasn't involved. She didn't take it off of him. He left it there voluntarily. So she lies to incriminate Joseph. She also tries to play a racial angle, pejoratively calling Joseph that Hebrew, two times in verses 14 and 17, emphasizing that he's not one of us. It's that Hebrew. And eventually, when all of her other strategies didn't get the reaction that she was hoping for, she looks at Potiphar, her husband, and says in verse 19, this is how your slave treated me. And that gets the job done. The text says that when he heard her say, this is how your slave treated me, he flipped a switch. The thought that, that it was his trusted slave whom he had promoted, to whom he had given all this authority, and who had now apparently betrayed that trust, it sends Potiphar into a rage that results in Joseph's imprisonment. So by no fault of his own, Joseph's reputation is immediately destroyed. Joseph isn't innocent until proven guilty. He's guilty because she said he's guilty, having submitted the cloak into evidence as Exhibit A. And now as we zoom out again, just beyond the confines of chapter 39, we see that there's a reason that this account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife follows the account of Judah and Tamar, last week's story. Feel the contrast between the two brothers in these two chapters. Judah, a free man, is not only presented with opportunities to sin, but he seeks them out, doesn't he? He sought them out. He left home. He married a foreigner. He solicited prostitution. Joseph, on the other hand, an enslaved man, a man in bondage, is bombarded with opportunities to sin, opportunities to, for God-dishonoring behavior, and yet he avoids them, doesn't he? Unlike Judah. In fact, we're told that he flees from them, doesn't he? And the text goes to great lengths to make sure that we don't miss the active and, and intentional role that Joseph plays in avoiding sin. Hear the repetition. It's almost ad nauseum. Verse 12, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. 
Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house. Verse 15, when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And verse 18, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. You know, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, has constructed a large, flashing, neon sign in this text that screams, Joseph fled from sin. Joseph was a man of integrity. You know, where Judah failed in chapter 38, Joseph succeeded in chapter 39 and proved to be a man of integrity in the face of temptation. They both paid a price, but only one was blameless before God. And it's this reality that of Joseph's pristine character, the text itself funnels us toward. You know, it's the integrity patty that the two buns hold up and showcase for us to marvel at. God, being with Joseph, is blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. Why? Because Joseph was a man of integrity. It was his integrity, his dogged refusal to dishonor his God, that empowered his usability. The two things are very much connected according to Genesis chapter 39. And that presents you and I with a question that only you and I can answer for ourselves. Are we people of integrity? Like Joseph, do you and I resist the temptations in our lives that that would otherwise defile us and, and hinder our usefulness? As Christians, each of us has been given living water. A drink that all humanity is parched for, though many deny or ignore. And out of our ever-growing love for, for people, we long to pipe that water into the lives of those around us. Some for the first time for the purpose of salvation, and some for spiritual sustenance for the purpose of sanctification and maturity and encouragement. Everyone in your life and everyone in my life needs the gospel. Saved or unsaved, mature or immature, on fire or under fire, energized or, or exhausted. There are no exceptions. We all need that Jesus-given water that springs up to eternal life. We all do. But if our lives are not lives of integrity, if we've been using our lives as a dumping ground for deception, for slander, sexual immorality, idolatry, greed, envy, sloth, or any other form of sewage, being blessed by God and being a blessing for God to others will be hindered. God calls his people to be people of integrity. People whose public lives consistently match their private lives. And whose private lives are becoming increasingly conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Christians of, of godly integrity that, that experience the presence of God who are blessed by God and who are a blessing to others for the sake of God. Genesis chapter 39 highlights this. God being with Joseph is blessing Joseph and others through Joseph. And he's doing that because Joseph proved to be a man of integrity in the face of temptation. His water was unpolluted and because of that, it was life-giving. And so we've seen in this passage the two pieces of bun and the patty in between. And now all that's left for us to do today is to eat it. You know, how are you and I meant to enjoy this inspired meal placed before us? And, and by doing so, how are we to grow in, in being the agents of God's blessing that he has called us to be? Well, when we understand the text properly and how it's structured and what it's doing, I mean, it becomes fairly obvious, doesn't it? 
We need, as God's people, to make purity a priority. It has to be a priority in our lives. No more dumping garbage, no more pollution. We need to ask God to help us clean up our reservoirs, that we may be both blessed and be a blessing to those around us. We need to make purity a priority in our lives and in the life of our church family. Now, to take a step in that direction this week, I want to suggest that we all play a couple rounds of a, a, popular, children's, a popular children's game called Show and Tell. I'm sure that you are familiar with it. You know, in this game, kids, maybe in school or in childcare, are, are invited to bring something with them from home that, that they love or that they have fun with or that they find interesting. And then they stand up before their peers and they show it to them. They show them what they brought. And then they follow that up by telling their audience, their young audience, about what it is that they're showing. This is my fire truck. I like it. It's red. Right? They show and tell what they've brought. Well, this week, to facilitate each of us and all of us taking steps toward making purity a priority in our lives, I encourage you to play two rounds of the game Show and Tell. The first round of Show and Tell will be, will be between you and God. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray wherever you are and ask God to show you where in your life there may be a pollution problem. Psalm 69 verse 5 says, You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. See, God knows where you and I err. He knows. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows our sins. He knows your sins. He knows my sins. He knows our habitual dumping patterns. He knows them. And asking him to bring to our mind ways in which we've trespassed against him is a prayer he will answer. And so ask God to show you where sin may be seeping into your life. And after, after you've done that and after he's answered that prayer, tell him, show and tell, tell him that you're sorry. A better, stronger, more biblical word for that is repent. Ask for forgiveness and, and divine empowerment to fight that sin going forward. The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, promises in his first epistle that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice, not only will he certainly forgive us, but he will purify us. He will cleanse us from the pollution that we've perhaps allowed to accumulate in our lives. Now, there may be ongoing consequences for our past sins, but for those who are forgiven in Christ, there is not ongoing guilt before a holy God. That's been washed away. And no life is so polluted that, that it cannot be purified by the most powerful cleaning agent the world has ever known, the blood of Jesus. You, brother, you, sister, can experience the presence of God and be filled with the Spirit of God like Paul commands us to be in Ephesians 5. And you can be used by God to bless those he has put in your life. Ask God to show you where the pollution is and then tell him you're sorry. Repent and enjoy his forgiveness, his purification, and his power. That's how we begin to make purity a priority in our lives and in the life of our church. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now before we continue. Wherever you are, in the quietness of your own heart, Talk to God, would you? Talk to God and play the most serious round of show and tell that you'll ever play. Now, that's the first round of show and tell. I said there would be two. The second may be more difficult, but it's important if we're going to make purity a priority in our lives and, and in the lives of our church in response to what God has taught us today through Genesis chapter 
39. You know, James in his epistle, he says to believers, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Clearly teaching that there is power, divine power in horizontal confession and in intercessory prayer, praying for one another. And so while round one was show and tell with God, round two is show and tell with a trusted Christian brother or sister. This may be your spouse, a coworker, a friend, your pastor, Sunday school teacher, or youth leader. It doesn't really matter as long as you trust them and as long as they know Christ as their Savior. And I want to encourage you at some point this week, reach out to that person, that person you probably have in mind already, and show them, show and tell, show them your heart by confessing sin to them. It may sound something like this. Listen, I don't necessarily need advice on this, but I do want to confess to you a way in which I've been wrestling with sin in my life. And then after you've shown them your heart in this way, tell them. Tell them to pray for you. Ask that, that they intercede on your behalf, thanking God for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your life, for his promised forgiveness, and for his power going forward, for you to continue to make purity a priority in your life and to fight that particular sin. Now, I know, I know this is not an easy application, but I promise, and better yet, God promises, you'll be blessed by the act of humble obedience. God, being with Joseph, blessed Joseph and others through Joseph. Why? Because Joseph proved to be a man of integrity. His water was unpolluted, and because of that, it was life-giving. We, t- we, too, need to be men and women of integrity, making our purity, our pursuit of personal holiness, a high, high priority. And when we do that, there are huge blessings that await, for ourselves, certainly, but also for the people that God has providentially placed in your life and in mine. Lord, make us a blessing. Make us a blessing. Out of our lives, may Jesus shine. Make us a blessing, O Savior, we pray. Make us a blessing to someone 